This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today's podcast, the title is RTI, Behavior and Learning Disabilities, but it's mostly about learning disabilities. Now, I started analyzing some schools' RTI plans, and I began noticing a disturbing trend. I began noticing behavior intervention plans and PBIS all stuck up into RTI plans. And I said to myself, hmm, did I miss something? In the 2004 reauthorization of the Individuals with Disability Act? Hmm. So I went back and looked, <coughs> and no, RTI has nothing to do with behavior. It's about getting quick and appropriate instruction and interventions for students who struggle with reading, writing, and math without them having to be formally identified in the special education system. <clears throat> so, a little history. RTI originated as a method of identification for students for special education services related to learning disabilities. Now, there were two problems with the traditional way of identifying students with learning disabilities. First, it took a long time to get students formally identified. There were very often delays in getting the students the special help they needed during formative periods. And by the time the classroom teacher formally recommended a kid for, uh, for possible special education services, and before the student got assessed using a battery of standardized tests, and before parent meetings were scheduled and all the forms signed, the student had been sitting around without getting appropriate instruction and being frustrated and not learning. That was the first problem. The second problem with identifying students with learning disabilities in the past was how students were assessed. A learning disability at one time was thought to be a difference between ability and achievement. A student of average intelligence, whatever that is, who had trouble learning math, reading, and writing, was said to have a learning disability. Identification was two-dimensional and simple. Give an intelligence test and an achievement test. If intelligence was in the normal quote-unquote range and achievement was in the quote below normal range, you got yourself a learning disability. What could be simpler than that? Makes sense, yes? No? Well, there are four problems with the second problem. The first problem is that the process of identifying students as having a learning disability becomes very test-centric, very psychometric. It's a problem that exists only on paper. Parents are then asked to sit in an IEP meeting and are subjected to a battery of numbers and colorful charts and graphs and terms as if these things actually meant something. And their wonderful child 
is quantified and described to them in terms of numbers and percentile rankings, even though these numbers and rankings have no meaning or value in the real world outside of school. The second problem with the second problem is that these tests have been shown to be culturally biased. This is one of many reasons why there is disproportionality in the special education system related to race and social economic status. The third problem with the second problem is that IQ tests measure a very narrow range of human thinking. And the fourth problem with the second problem is that the normal is that normal seems to have been defined by some church committee meeting in a basement someplace. Who gets to define what's normal? Is it mathematically defined? Is it one standard deviation below and above average? If the absolute average IQ score was 100, which it is, an IQ between 85 and 115 would be average. Normal scores would then be between the 16th percentile and the 84th percentile ranking. To have a learning disability, you'd have to have a test score in reading, math, or writing in the 15th percentile or below, while having an IQ score in the 16th percentile or above. Intelligence tests have a long history of being misunderstood and misused. So what do you do when something becomes problematic? Well, you change the names, of course. They're now, now called aptitude tests, and instead of measuring intelligence, they measure cognition. Of course they do. It's called problem-solving. So, let's look at the current definition of a learning disability under the Individuals with Disabilities Act. It moved away from the difference between ability and achievement and instead focused on perfection and imperfection. This is how it's defined. A specific learning disability means a disorder in one or more of the basic psychological processes, and we'll define that term in a minute, processes involved in understanding or in using language, spoken or written, that may manifest itself in the imperfect ability to listen, think, speak, read, write, spell, or do mathematical calculations, including conditions such as perceptual disabilities, brain injury, minimal brain dysfunction, dyslexia, and developmental aphasia. Interesting. Disorders not included uh, are these. Specific learning disability does not include learning problems that are primarily the result of visual, hearing, or motor disabilities, of intellectual disability, of emotional disturbance, or of environmental, cultural, or economic disadvantage, of emotional disturbance, whatever that is. But notice how emotional behavior disorders get mixed up in this whole thing. Emotion. So, it's a 
disorder. There's order and there's out of order. Something is out of order. It's a disorder of basic psychological processes and it's an imperfect ability. So those are two things, basic psychological processes and imperfect ability. Let's start with a disorder of basic psychological processes. What is a basic psychological process? You cannot assume that everyone knows this. As a matter of fact, I had to look this up. What is a basic psychological process? Well, according to the Minnesota Department of Education, Basic psychological processes include acquisition of information, organization, planning and sequencing, working memory, including verbal, visual, spatial, visual and auditory processing, speed of processing, verbal and nonverbal expression, nonverbal expression, that's interesting, transfer of information, and motor control for written tasks. Motor control. Now, that's an interesting one. All of the others have to do with cognition or thinking, except for nonverbal expression. I'm not quite sure how that fits in. All interesting. Planning and sequencing. Verbal expression. I wonder what imperfect nonverbal expression is. Now, here's the thing. If I'm reading something about financial planning, something I know nothing about, my ability to acquire information, organize the information, is far from perfect. As a matter of fact, it's imperfect. If you tested my working memory for financial planning, it would be very, very imperfect. Now, given the same test with things related to literacy, my working memory would greatly expand. I'd be acquiring information like nobody's business in a way that's more than perfect. The point is, one's basic psychological processes, cognition, are impacted by what one is trying to process. Now, the Minnesota Department of Education has identified the basic psychological processes linked with disabilities. They are these. Executive functions, attention, short-term memory, fluid reasoning, long-term retrieval, associative memory, phonological processing, morphographic and orthographic processing, and successive and simultaneous processing, able to do things at the same time or one or the other. Interesting. And again, all related to cognition, executive functions. All right. Now, I'm a literacy guy, so let's start with phonological processing. Wagner and Torgerson, well-known people in the area of learning disabilities, define phonological processes as the use of sounds of one's language, phonemes, to process spoken and written language. All right? Broad category of phonological processing includes phonological awareness, phonological working memory, and phonological retrieval. All right? So, 
Uh, phonological processing is essentially the use of the sounds of one's language to process spoken and written language. Now, phonological processing is a small sub-part of reading. There are children who learn to read quite well, thank you, whose phonological processing is imperfect. These students develop and utilize the two other cueing systems, syntactic and semantic. The brain uses three systems to recognize words while reading, phonological, syntactic, and semantic. And sadly, instruction that focus us, focuses on their imperfect ability while ignoring the more perfect abilities greatly impedes students' ability to learn to read. So we are creating learning, learning disabilities based on what we do and don't do. Now, morphographic and orthographic processing. I have never heard the term morphographic used in the context of literacy instruction. And I've been reading stuff for 30 years. Technically, I would posit that 98% of literacy professors, scholars, teachers, and reading teachers would not know what that term means exactly. I know what morphological analysis is or morphemic analysis. I know what morphemic analysis is. That's the ability to break words into parts, prefix, suffix, root words, affixes. This is one way to identify words while reading, morphemic analysis, but it's one of four ways. Many students with imperfect morphographic processing can read and learn just fine. Orthographic refers to spelling. Spelling is related to visual memory. It's the ability to store and retrieve letter patterns. There are a great many imperfect spellers who can learn just fine, thank you, and who can read just fine, thank you. Spelling has very little to do with creating meaning with print. So let's look now at imperfect abilities. The Department of Education defines learning disability as an imperfect ability to listen, think, speak, read, write, spell, or do mathematical calculations. It's an imperfect ability. That means that perfection is needed to not have a disability. If you're not perfect, you're imperfect. You can't be kind of perfect or quasi-perfect or semi-perfect or partially perfect or moderately perfect. If one's basic psychological processes results in an ability in an ability that is not perfect, then does one have a possible learning disability? Now we can analyze the vague categories of think, listen, and speak all day. I'm sure that there's a psychometric device someplace used to measure listening, thinking, and speaking. But these are measurement devices described far that describe how far away from average students are when measured in the artificial confines of a little room with a test and an educational psychologist sitting there in a chair. 
I'm not sure these measures or definitions have any meaning in the real world. An imperfect ability. When I was getting my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin River Falls in the late 70s and early 80s, I was a very, very, very imperfect speller. I turn in papers, and this was long before computers and spell check, mind you, for you youngsters. I turn in papers and get an A in content, but a D in mechanics, which includes spelling. Now, 40 years later, I would say I'm slightly above average in spelling. Was I cured? Somehow, my imperfect ability to spell because of that and besides my imperfect ability to spell, somehow with this, I was able to graduate. I was even able to earn a PhD from a prestigious university and write a lot of books and get these books published. Imagine that. All the writing and reading that I've done cured me. I've been cured of my imperfect ability. Hmm. We could probably use that in a school setting, couldn't we? The importance of reading and writing a lot and using that spell check. An imperfect ability to listen and think. My wife would say that I often display imperfect abilities to do these things, especially when my mind is distracted. I once put a pizza in the oven upside down. What were you thinking? I, I don't know. An imperfect ability to do mathematical calculations. Now, I've been using calculators for so long that I really have to stop and think about long division when I do it by hand. I can't multiply numbers in my head like I used to. So time and technology has given me another learning disability. You get the picture. The very definition of learning disabilities is imperfect. So the Department of Education must have a definition disability. Let's look now at restrictions and disabilities. There are two primary models of disability, the medical model and the social model. The medical model is used by most departments of education to define disability. The medical model of disability says the problem lies within the person. The person has a defect. We have to fix the person. We have to cure the person. We have to make them perfect. We have to get them up to normal. We have to administer a treatment to make the defect go away. That's the medical model. Now, the social model of disability says that the disability exists on the social plane, meaning that an impairment or imperfect ability does not become a disability until restrictions are in place. No restrictions, no disability. <clears throat> restrictions, disability. <clears throat> a person in a wheelchair is not disabled unless or until <clears throat> they encounter buildings and public places that are inaccessible. No restrictions, no disability. Restrictions, disability. 
A person with an imperfect ability to spell does not become imperfect unless they don't have access. They do not have access to a computer and a spell check. You get the idea. So, restrictions. Again, according to the social model of disability, an impairment does not become a disability until or unless restrictions are put in place. So, what restrictions are put in place for those with an imperfect ability to read or write? And I'm the literacy guy, so we're going to look at these. Let's look at reading first. The restriction in place for students with imperfect abilities to read is imperfect reading instruction based on an imperfect understanding of reading and the reading process. This imperfect understanding says that reading is primarily sounding out words. That's imperfect. Reading instruction based on that imperfect understanding is imperfect reading instruction. Imperfect reading instruction focused primarily, focuses primarily on sounding out words. So you get imperfect reading instruction programs like Wilson Systems and Orton Gillingham and a dozen other for-profit programs put together by the Educational Industrial Complex. And this also includes <coughs> other for-profit professional development things used by uh, like letters. Letters is an imperfect professional development program for reading instruction has little research to support its effectiveness. And that's another podcast. <clears throat> so, it sounds like many reading disabilities might actually be teaching disabilities. The question then becomes, what restrictions are put in place that make the teaching of reading become a teaching disability? Well, I can name a few, its administration and state legislatures and the departments of education mandating that certain types of instruction or programs or approaches be used with fidelity. Another restriction is created using a limited understanding of science and a simple view of reading to define the science of reading and research-based instruction. These are some of the restrictions that lead to imperfect reading instruction. What about writing? An imperfect ability to write. That's usually the result of no writing instruction at all or writing instruction that focuses primarily on grammar, sentence structure, punctuation, and spelling or writing instructors who just assign a lot of writing, or writing intensive courses that assign writing without teaching the process of writing. That is imperfect writing instruction. Imperfect writing instruction does not teach the process of writing. Imperfect writing instruction does not include daily writing in which students use writing to describe their experiences or express their ideas. 
Imperfect writing instruction does not allow choice in writing topics. Imperfect writing instruction has led to an imperfect ability to write. And think. An imperfect ability to think. Let's think about that one. What could possibly be the restriction here? Well, I will tell you. With struggling readers, we make them do drill and practice of low-level reading subskills. We use direct instruction in which they are merely asked to respond to stimuli with the correct answer. We don't provide opportunities for them to read, <clears throat> to discuss with others, or to engage in high-level thinking. And even an imperfect thinker would agree that if you only teach low-level skills, only low-level thinking is the likely result. So, final word here. A learning disability only exists within a school environment. Outside the narrow confines of school, I've seen many with identified learning disabilities become highly successful in their professional lives and personal lives. <clears throat> now, this was only after shaking off the stigma of the label that was given to them by the educational system. And I say, how dare we define anybody's potential? What is defined as a learning disability is really an educational disability. How about if we significantly downsize the special education system, create smaller class sizes, provide better working conditions, and give teachers the professional development opportunities they need to develop the skills to create inclusive learning environments with differentiated instruction? 15 students to a class, that would be ideal. We wouldn't need to send them out of the room for special instruction. All right. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I am your host, Dr. Andy Johnson.